Grab a Bible, uh, open up to Isaiah 9. We're going to be in Isaiah 9 uh, to close out our Christmas series that we've been in. And uh, we'll get there in a few minutes. When Jesus was born, there were some shepherds working the fields outside of Bethlehem, and an angel of the Lord appeared to this lowly group to announce the Savior's arrival. Then a vast group of angels appeared, and they declared this great truth. We can read it in Luke 2. It says, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. So according to heaven... One of the effects of the birth of Jesus was that peace would come to the earth. But here's the problem. One of the last words that we could use to describe our world or even our own lives is the word peace. We have nations warring against nation, kingdoms rising and falling, military regimes changing, nations joining into peace treaties but, uh, that never seem to actually last. Social issues divide us as a nation. We continue to polarize and fight about who is right and who is wrong. Political divisiveness threatens to cripple us as our leaders that can't get along long enough to, to fix problems. Individuals struggle with copious amounts of stress, high blood pressure, ulcers. Families are characterized by chaos. I mean, how many people do you know that, that could be described as truly being at peace? How many people do we know who are truly content in life, who don't worry, who don't experience relational brokenness? And I, I think that it's ironic that the Christmas season, which is supposedly designed to bring peace, is usually one of the most stressful and chaotic times of the year, right? Yet the, yet the message of Christmas is one of peace. The angel announced it as fact in Luke 2. But there's even more to this peace thing at Christmas. So let's look one more time at Isaiah 9, starting in verse 2. Isaiah writes, the, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in the land of the shadow of death, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall make great their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall shatter the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders. The rod of their taskmaster is at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the rumbling of battle and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning, fuel for the fire. Verse six, for a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of Yahweh of hosts will accomplish this. So these four titles given for Jesus, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, we are seeing who he is and what he does. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. His domain is characterized by peace. And biblically, this peace is not just an absence of conflict, but it's the presence of wholeness 
the presence of completion, nothing lacking, uh, shalom. Jesus' kingdom is marked by peace. And the odd message of the New Testament is that peace is not only possible to attain, but it's a dominant reality for the Christian. So what does this life of peace actually look like? How does the Prince of Peace establish that peace in our lives? Well, Jesus establishes three types of peace. The first one is peace with God. He gives us peace with God. Something within us alerts us to the truth that we don't have peace with God. We feel this inherent need to appease him. Regardless of the religion, culture, time period, this is the story of humanity. We know something's lacking, so we try to make up for it. Whether it's human sacrifice, as some cultures and religions still do, uh, cutting yourself, killing animals, offering incense, living morally upright, we intuitively understand that we are at odds with God. And the Bible, the Bible declares that that's absolutely true. It tells us that we are not worthy of God and that we have set ourselves at war with him. Then to add insult to injury, we discover that the God of the Bible, the one true God, he demands absolute perfection from us. Well, I don't know about you, but I'm out. I'm out. So, so now I need to work to get into his good favor. I need to devote my life to paying off this debt of imperfection that I owe. And this is how a lot of religious people live out their existence. Across the spectrum of the, the world's religions and in some flavors of Christianity, it says, God demands me to be perfect. I'm not perfect. So now God is mad. So now what? Well, some have simply given up and walked away from God. They believe that he isn't worth pleasing. Perhaps he's impossible to please. So why bother? You know, isn't life more enjoyable and freeing if we don't have to worry about making up some perceived debt to some perceived deity? Others, however, they devote their lives to appeasing God. So, so they work. So they serve. They steep themselves in guilt over their sin because guilt makes us feel holy. They attend religious services. They live moral lives all in an effort to make sure that God isn't mad at them. But here's the problem. It's never enough. It's never enough. The Bible says that we fall short, all fall short of God's glory. That's the standard. The Bible says our righteousness is like filthy rags to God. The Bible says that even the most impressive of resumes is trash in God's sight. God does not accept the currency of our morality to pay the debt that we owe him. The bad news of the Old Testament the bad news of the Old Testament is there, that there is nothing you can do to have peace with God. But here is this great ironic twist, is that the good news of the New Testament is, that, is also that you, there's nothing you can do to have peace with God. It's the same message. We can't find peace with God on our own. God himself will come down to provide the peace. Mighty God will be our Prince of Peace. He will come down to personally pay the debt to provide peace with God. This is a doctrine called justification. It's 
Jesus, the righteousness of Jesus is counted for us. It's counted as our righteousness. Colossians 1, 19 to 23 says this, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, and although you were formerly, uh, formerly alienated and enemies in mind and in evil deeds, but now he reconciled you in the body of his flesh through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith firmly grounded and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. It says, having made peace through the blood of his cross. We have peace with God. And number two, we have peace regarding the future. Uh, In the gospel, right near the end of the gospel of John, Jesus says this in 1633. He says, these things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will, in the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. Now, this verse is the crescendo of a long discourse that Jesus has just given to his disciples. And he says he told them these things so that they may have peace. So, so what are these things that he, he tells them that supposedly will bring peace? Well, the first thing he tells them is that He's leaving to prepare heaven for them. We read that in John 14. It says, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus is leaving to prepare heaven for them. Also, uh, he says that he's not going to leave them all alone. We, we see this in, also in John 14, verse 15. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate, that he may be with you forever. The spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see him or know him. You know him because he abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Jesus promises that the advocate, this, the spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit is going to come. And we see this play out on the day of Pentecost in the, in the book of Acts. And he also tells them that life is going to be difficult. Back to John 16, verse 1. These things I have spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling They will put you out of the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. These things they will do because they did not know the Father or me, but these things I've spoken to you so that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them. These things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. So Jesus is leaving. The Holy Spirit is arriving and life is about to get challenging. How could telling them these things bring peace? Well, you know, after Jesus leaves, uh, they could feel that their last three years with him were wasted. Did they just waste three years traveling around, leaving jobs, spending so much time away from their families? 
You know, they've slept outside because they had no place to stay. They've been so hungry that they ate raw grain while walking through a field. They had no money. Was it all for nothing that Jesus was leaving? No. It all has purpose. He is now leaving to prepare their eternal reward and dwelling place in heaven so they can be together for eternity. Well, I would think that would certainly give them peace. And you know, once, once Jesus tells them is leaving, they could also feel abandoned. After all, by their own words, the, the disciples said that they had left everything to follow Jesus. And now he's just going to go away? You know, what gives? That could create, you know, maybe a little anxiety, I would think. Uh, some friction in the relationship. But Jesus assures them. He says, I won't leave you alone. I will come to you. The Holy Spirit is on his way. And he actually says it's better that the Spirit comes. And he says life will get difficult. How could, how could that bring peace? Well, once Jesus is gone and they begin to live their lives in faithfulness to him, how will they react when it doesn't go well for them? When friends and family turn their backs on them, when they are stripped and beaten for their faith, when persecution leads to their deaths, they could begin to think that God had totally abandoned them you know, maybe they got it wrong. Did they misunderstand Jesus? How is this life with Jesus a blessing if it's causing so much pain? But he warns them. He tells them what faithfulness will do to their lives. And it's not all positive. Back to John 16, 33, he says, these things I've spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. Notice, he never gives a promise that life's going to be easy. He only gives them a promise for peace in the midst of anything. And it's, it's not a promise that he will change circumstances to be peaceful, but that he will change people to be peaceful in circumstances. Let me say that again. It is not a promise that he will change circumstances to be peaceful, but that he will change uh, people to be peaceful in circumstances, God never promises this side of heaven that all things are going to work out in the way that we would like. That we will walk into situations and they will immediately be characterized by peace. If you ever hear anybody preaching that message, that's a false message. That's not in here. The promise is that no matter what situation we find ourselves in, we can be characterized by peace. And because we are sinful people, this is easier said than done, right? Here's how we do this. Philippians 4, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It's not, and this is not just that we can be peaceful in the present, but that no matter what may come in the future, we can have peace regarding it all as well. A peace that surpasses all comprehension. Uh, this John, who, the Apostle John, who recorded these words of Jesus in John 16, it's the same John who has shown a great re uh, the great visions of, of Revelation, seeing Jesus as risen and reigning over all things ushering us into heaven and showing us life on the new earth. Jesus defeating Satan and all those opposed to God, righting all the wrongs, healing all that is 
broken. He gives us this beautiful vision of the future. So how many of you have, have lost sleep before worrying about something only to find out that the next day it was all fine? It all worked out. Yep. I, you don't have to raise your hand. I do that way more than I wish I did. I just did it the other day. No matter what today holds or what the future holds, there is peace for us because one, we know that the promises of God are true. We know that he is faithful. And that if we in gratitude let our request be made known to God, his peace, which is beyond our comprehension, we can't understand it. It will guard our hearts and our minds. So if you need some peace, stand on that promise. God is faithful. But also, we know how the Prince of Peace will eternally establish peace. We know the future. We know that it's all going to work out. And that can give us tremendous peace. So number one, we have peace with God. Two, we have peace regarding the future. And number three, we have peace in relationships. There's a natural progression to this. And this one grows out of the first two. If if I have peace with God, I don't have to jockey for position to feel important. I don't have to try to elevate myself by trying to demote others. I have peace with God, accepted and loved by him, so I am free to, to elevate others. I am now difficult to offend. I forgive quickly. I'm gracious. If I have peace with my future, I don't have to throw others under the bus to secure my future. I don't have to step on others on my way up the corporate ladder. I don't have to completely own the outcomes of the lives around me or every situation and try to control them because Jesus has this covered. The Bible speaks often and highly of the need for relational peace. Matthew 5, 9, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Romans 12, 18, here's another challenging passage. If possible, so far as it depends on you, being at peace with all men. Another trans- translation just as if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Live at peace with everyone. That's hard. Philippians 2, 3 through 4, I read this at the beginning of the service. Paul says, doing nothing from selfish ambition or vainglory, but with humility of mind, regarding one another is more important than yourselves. Not merely looking out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. So how is it possible, possible for people who are naturally at odds with one another and naturally divided to experience relational peace? Well, at the cross, Jesus removed any barrier to peace, peace with God or with people. He made it all possible. And when I realize that I have been forgiven by the sacrifice of Jesus, and this other person made in God's image has been forgiven by the sacrifice of Jesus, the animosity fades. Any social divisions that divided are destroyed. William Barclay said, when we have realized what Christ did for each and every one of us, it is no longer possible to regard anyone as being beneath us. The social grades are gone. Christmas is, yes, about Jesus leaving the glory of heaven, humbling himself, and coming to earth as a baby. 
He humbled himself. But Christmas is really about the reason he came, and that reason is the cross. The cross of Jesus is what brings peace. It brings peace with God as your sins are forgiven through faith in Jesus. The cross brings peace with your future as you acknowledge that Jesus is risen and he's the risen and reigning Lord of all things. And the cross brings peace in relationships as it causes us to to be humble, to look out for the interests of others. That's what the cross does. That's what Jesus does in us. So please understand, you cannot have peace at all without first having peace with God. You can't experience true peace without having peace with God. You will never have peace regarding your future or peace in your relationships unless you have peace with the God who made it all possible, who holds that gift out to you today for peace. So turn to him today and let the Prince of Peace establish his peace in your life. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for sending your one and only son so that we could have peace, so that we could have peace with you, so that we could have peace regarding the future and we could find contentment and and peace truly in in all circumstances. Uh, Not on our own, but, but with you. And by letting our requests be made known to you, God, with gratitude and thanksgiving. Thank you for promising a peace that we can't even understand. And God, thank you for making it possible for us to have peace with other people. God, I pray that you'd give us reminders of that daily. God, that because of you, we we have peace. Help us to, to God, may that, that truth change how we interact with, with the world. May that change the conversations we have. May that change our thoughts. God, would you continue to transform us and God, make us a people who are characterized by peace, by humility, by love. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the message of Christmas. And that even even today, where the focus is on the birth of Jesus, we we look forward to, to the cross, the reason why he came. God, we're so grateful. We're so grateful that you made it possible to have peace through your broken body and your shed blood on a cross. And in a moment, we'll remember that through communion, through the bread and the cup. And I pray that, uh, God, that this this time would, would be a reminder to us of the peace that is possible only in you. God, we we pray that as the uh, the adrenaline fades off and the, just the, the post-Christmas stuff that happens every year. Uh, we experience that this week. God, I pray that uh, 
we'd, we'd look to you, that we would not grow weary as we look at the world around us, that we would not grow weary as we look at the brokenness in our own lives, of our own sin. But God, our, we would be people who continually turn to you. God, we need you, we love you, and we thank you today. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.